Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield, and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shiny man? Unbelievable subterfuge by Marcus Rashford in the build-up to the Man United equaliser in the Manchester Derby on Saturday. To quote a line from one of my favourite 90s movies, the greatest trick the Red Devil ever pulled was convincing the VAR hub in Stockley Park he didn't exist. Oh, Welcome Christ. to the show. Welcome well, home. I feel like that was, that, that was a bit of the oven for, okay, game's here at a half 12. <laughs> Quarter past two on Saturday. And it, you know what? It may have curdled slightly. It's been in the slow cooker. It is, yeah. It's, it. Listen, I'm just saying. The Kaiser Sose of Old Trafford. United and Manchester City are both in action again in the Premier League during the week. United against Palace on Wednesday night. City plays Spurs on Thursday. Yeah. What channel are they on? I don't know. I don't oh, know okay. Fun. They're on Sky. No, no, he's not. He's well, not doing one of his... I tell you, no, I well, Ken, do you want to know what the Premier Sports game next Saturday is? Having just done the uh, Brighton-Liverpool game. What w- next? One of Klopp's final games as Liverpool manager, the way, <laughs> the way his mood seems to beat them up. Um, next Saturday? Wolves? West, no. It's West Ham Everton. West Ham Everton. Oh, my Ooh. God. Your eyes widen there. You're oh, actually going, wow. oh, wow, that's a good game. No I will be watching. That is a good game. Wow. But listen, wow. what I'm, at the moment, I'm not selling Premier Sports. I'm trying to sell the World Service first. Yeah, okay, <laughs> All right. So what I'm saying is... Join the World Service for more of Owen's ads for Premier Sports. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, we'll be doing loads of football coverage during the week. Sign up to hear that. He doesn't even do it that much. Com. I know. Non-World Service members. Listen, whether or not you're a member, whether you're a member or not, we would really appreciate your help at something. If you could take five minutes to be part of our first ever Second Captain's podcast listener survey, that would be swell. It's online right now. You've always guided us and encouraged us on what works best in the podcast. That's why Owen's Poems has flourished over the years. And <laughs> we'd love your input more than ever uh, for this one as we, we're basically trying to get an idea of what works in the podcast from your perspective as we approach 10 bloody years of Second Captain's. The Second Captain's show in Ireland. Yeah, that's the one. You'll be able to access this survey on secondcaptains.com on your Patreon email today, if you're a member, on the show page of today's show and on links on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, so just take five minutes to tell us what you think works, maybe what you think should be cut. Be gentle there. And of course, just please confirm how much you love Grunge Week. That's really I'm nice. so worried, 
the grunge was of that quality, I wouldn't have a problem with Grunge Week. One of our survey filler inners will win four tickets to this year's Gangs All Hair show of your choice. So please get filling in now if you can. If you've got a few minutes, it'd be great to get your thoughts on that. Right now, we're going to report on sport. Well, Owen, where does this start? It is I mean, a hard one, isn't it? Yeah, it was unbelievable. There, there's quite a lot of... It was, in, it was an unbelievable weekend. Yeah. Kieran, what game did you enjoy most over the weekend? Oh, there was some God, good games. What was the one Man United are back. Well, you know, they're back. On balance, I would probably have to say that I enjoyed the Manchester Derby the most of the games played this week, or indeed of most weeks in my life. <laughs> and what were your feelings in the... I guess 77th minute with Manchester United 1 0 down at home. Uh, having fought so bravely. Yeah, I mean, I thought ama- amazing bravery being shown by so many Manchester United players. Mm. Um, and I felt that there was a signature Manchester United charge coming in the last 50 minutes. Oh, did you? Now, would, there, would it be enough? When you saw Garnacho. Yeah, I mean, I just felt you like this guy's going to do it. Well, for they us. love exciting young wide players. At that is a thing. Now, see, maybe. Fans of other clubs probably don't understand that, you know. But for Manchester United fans, seeing a really good young player playing for them who can dribble and shoot, and yeah, seems very really aggressive and confident. It's yeah, a, it's an Old that, Trafford specific passion. You know, that's just you know, the the you know, call us crazy, but that's just that's the, that's the thing that's in your DNA. Murphy. It's in it's right in there, right in there. So um, yeah, and of course it was a touch controversial. Mm. Um, um, well, sorry, now just before we. Before we continue, yeah. I'd just like to put on record that uh, not only is Peter Walton a hugely entertaining and charismatic personality <laughs> on BT Sport, he's wise and knowledgeable. <laughs> I am always led by his expert analysis, and I just feel that others in this studio should also just I just just we'll take just bring up. Peter in here. The man's a font of knowledge and a credit to his profession. Now, well, please, Ken. Well, of course. Continue. I mean, obviously, this goal should not have been a goal. <clears throat> well. Sorry, can we, Peter, can we get you in here for and a this second? Is another, this is another example. I mean, obviously, P- Peter Walton, um, I mean, I, you know, he seemed fairly sure that it, that it was. But it's just another example of VAR just inserting a mistake. Like they did at, at uh, Newcastle as well, the same, the same day. At least uh, they didn't take a goal away. Or Sunday. A lot of the times they're inserting mistakes, or they're, they're inserting decisions that take goals away. At least this one was generously awarding a goal. I mean, VAR, <laughs> if you're going to, you should err on the side of... The attacking team. Oops. That's what. That's all we asked for, yeah. uh, and that a consistency. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, so he didn't touch the ball, but clearly he affects the entire move. You know, as a Kanji was saying afterwards. I mean, I, first of all, I let him run offside. Then was like, well, he's offside. I don't need to worry about this too much. And then it's like, oh, what? Well, that's poor decision making. I mean, I, I actually, <laughs> I'm quite, I'm quite amazed that a Kanji would come out and own up to his mistake in so <laughs> ca- a cavalier a fashion. But the, I made a massive blunder. Admit City Defender is how I'd headline that. <laughs> but the main one is obviously Ederson. You know, and Guardiola said this afterwards. It's like, well, you know, like, Ederson is preparing for Rashford to shoot right until, until the moment when Bruno Fernandes yeah. shoots. I mean, what is Ederson's uh, signature move? Come out and clear all. Clear house. <laughs> clear all, exactly. <laughs> you know, exit Select box, all, clear, clear all. all. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what he doesn't do. I mean, he'd already done it earlier in the game yeah. uh, when Rashford went around him, uh, running out to the side of his box. So clearly, in that situation, is he, you know, if it's Bruno Fernandez that he thinks he has to deal with, mm. is he going to wait until Fernandez gets to have a nice one on one shot against him? I don't think so. Um, 
but this was, and it was kind of so clear. You know, he was on, he was running on the ball, like he runs after it and he bikes a shot. So it's a, he just was a, just eager to let Bruno know where the ball was. It's like maybe he's missed the ball, but here, here. I can stand look, right look, beside look, the look. ball. Then Bruno definitely will be. He'll see the ball in the side out of the there, side. There of was his one. Side. Liverpool got called for one Alexander Arnold yeah. in the Brighton game where he. He was just watching the ball go out of play. Yeah. He didn't touch the ball either. He moved after it, though, in the same way in that the same Rashford way that did. Rashford did, yeah, um, mm. but but didn't get as close to it. It wasn't anywhere near as dangerous a situation, regardless of the danger of the situation isn't in the rules. But the point is, it was, in this case, if they were to apply the rules they applied at Old Trafford to that one, mm. then he shouldn't have been called for offside. No, of course. should have had a throw in. It was, it was immediately obvious, you know, when you when you saw that. It's like, because the other one being fresh in your mind, you're like, well, there's, I mean, it's crazy. And in that, in that instance, it was a ricochet as well, which had come towards Alexander Arnold, who was offside from a from a shot, but um, you know he didn't he didn't move to play, or he did move towards it, but he didn't play it. He yeah. moved towards it because he's like following it out to take the throw that he thinks he's going to take, but then it's offside. So um, just just nonsense again. But in this instance, I thought it was Manchester United getting some look that they actually deserved. Mm-hmm. This was a game that they deserved to win. You know, they, the the goal that they scored. The first goal that they scored shouldn't have been a goal, but they were the only team in the game that had really looked much like scoring throughout the game. Like Man City had only their goal. And then there was the, the Kyle Walker shot from miles out and Haaland had a header that kind of looped over and Haaland had another one where he was a, where he shot was blocked. Mm. Um, by I can't remember which like defender. Casemiro, I think, or Cas- Fred. Well, a combination of Casemiro and Fred. I think. And then there was the one, the late one, where Haaland's kind of kicked Casemiro and was looking for a penalty. Mm. And that was it. There wasn't anything. You know, can you can you think of another of, of another chance? They didn't open them up. They didn't sort of move them around in the way that they that their whole game is set up to do. Didn't happen for them at all. Poor old Grealish, though. Well, he's, he's, I know, he's never going to have his moment. He's never going to have his big <laughs> moment. He could have had one in the Champions League semi last year. Missed it. Berries one saved yesterday. By, saved by Goldberg. I know. Berries one yesterday. That was, nominee, that was the moment. But for all this talk, oh, he's a lot better this year than last year. Like, yeah. He needs to score big goals and big games, which he did, but now nobody will remember that yeah. one. <laughs> well, he, ha- he has been um, having probably his best few weeks for City, actually, the last... The other, the other concerning thing for City, I'd say, from the game was Foden and, and what a non-event he was. You know, we're talking to Miguel and uh, Mark Critchley, who were both there uh, later on, so we'll talk about this game in a bit more detail. But Foden is, you know, has been an integral player. You know, there's, n- there's none of the... Um, sort of stylistic concerns about Foden that you get with both Haaland and Grealish for different reasons in, in the City setup. Mm. Like Foden is a player who can both play City football and score. He's a, he's a pep player of every you've seen one. I mean, pep has made him a pep player, I and, uh, on top of his own talent. But in this game, just didn't, you know, couldn't get involved in it at all. I think he had 14 touches, um, which is pretty, I mean, he came off before the hour mark because he was kind of. Not, not featuring at all, but like United's whole approach. I mean, considering they they got absolutely smashed in the in the first game, now they got off to a really bad start. And there's one thing, you know, if you, if you can see an early goal against Man City away, things often spiral horribly out yeah. of control. But in this instance, um, City still had more of the ball in the game, and as they kind of always do. But the counterattacks of United were just so much more dangerous than anything City were City uh, were able to do, and the aggression. 
Like, how many times did Malassia uh, kick uh, Riyad Mahrez up the ice? Mm. Like, it was, it was incredible. And obviously the, the referees, but like, that's playing the referee now. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, the, I mean, because the, the referees, the referees are saying, okay, we're gonna, we're basically gonna allow all kinds of barging and kind of, mm. you know, contact, which previously we would have been giving free kicks. They're saying, no, we're just gonna let that now. So it's like, okay, well, if they're gonna let it, then let's make sure every time the ball comes tomorrow, is you're kicking him in the back at the same time that he's trying to control the ball, and we'll see how we'll see how but good we, he looks. Well, yeah, it was kind of a weirdo though, because they were still giving the freeze. They just weren't giving the oh, inevitable yellow they, card. They weren't giving the the freeze all the time. There was a, there was a couple of times he. Conceded a foul. I mean, I'd say Malassia fouled Mares, as in fouled, and the free was given at least four times. Yeah, well, I actually haven't looked at his number of number of fouls total, but there was there was but what you could see was that determination to be there as the ball arrives for Mares. You know, they're not going to let mm. him turn, and this was the same thing. You know, Foden. Th- th- this is why Foden was kind of pressed out of the yeah. game as well. Nobody is to be allowed to turn in these areas and play a dangerous pass, uh, and for most of the game. That just never happened for City. So you got all this kind of backwards passing and sideways passing, but without any kind of change of pace then to actually get in. And so it was like they just sort of looked vulnerable to the counterattacks which United kept hitting them with and which eventually resulted in a couple of goals. So I, I kind of feel as though, even though the goal was obviously wrong, it's not it's not really an injustice in the sense of this is a game that the, res, the, the game had the right result. Mm-hmm. Um uh, yeah, I think United were better, or City were better by miles for like a 10-minute period, kind of from the 20th to the 30th minute. Mm. And then in the second half, for a good portion of the third quarter of the game, they were probably the better team. But at for all, every other at every other stage of the game, United looked the more likely team to score. So maybe on balance, I mean, I, I think a draw, to be fair, might also have been a pretty fair result. But, I mean, I'm not complaining. Yeah, well, City's next six games are um, Spurs, Wolves, Arsenal, Spurs, Villa, Arsenal. So it's <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite interesting. Spurs are a team who they have had problems with. I mean, did Spurs not do the double over them last season? Um, I think they did. They beat them the first game of the season, and then there was that kind of Harry Kane game where, you know, Harry Kane uh, touched the ball six times and everything he did was, like, was breaking the game apart. Um uh, so Spurs obviously are in a in a bad situation at the moment, and that's what we'll talk about now. Arsenal. I mean, if there was ever a time for Arsenal to kind of bottle it or f- or fumble a chance, this was it. I thought. You know, I, I was actually watching the game, or at the beginning of the game, I was thinking, looking at Son and Kane, all of the joy that they've had against Arsenal over the years, including the most recent huge game between these teams at what our name, which was the twelfth of May last year. Um, highly motivated team. Uh, you know, trying to shake off some bad form. Arsenal, during the week, Arteta confirms that uh, they, Gabriel Jesus' injury is worse than they had hoped. Um, they're hoping to have him back for the final months of the season. So basically, he's out for months rather than weeks. Conte also throwing in a few grenades ahead of the game. When you're top of the league, the perception of your opponents changes totally. You were in that moment the best team league. For this reason, everybody wants to beat you, for sure. Arsenal has to face the situation as favourites to win the league. They have to show they're good to face this kind of situation. He also talked about how he would never uh, disrespect a referee in the way that certain other managers have been accused of doing lately. Yeah. Such as the man in the opposite corner. So all of that was water over ducks back to Arteta. Well, this Arsenal. is the thing, you know, because what he's saying about the pressure is true. And then the, the, 
the city defeat, it's like it's here for you now. You know, this is it. Like this is when you have to have to seize this chance and all the pressure. And this is the youngest team in the league. And they've not, they have never been in this type of situation. And this is a ground where they have a miserable record. And then, okay, I, I don't think necessarily transfer stuff um, is going to impact that hugely on the team. But the fact is, they had been expecting for months and months to, to sign Mikhail Mudrik. So, and then this didn't happen. So we'll, <clears throat> we'll, we'll get into that in a second. But if you, if you can think about, like, if this result had gone badly for Arsenal, even if it had been a draw, the kind of gloom that begins to engulf, it's all, all the ingredients are there. And instead, they come out and just produce a brilliant performance right from the very beginning. What was so brilliant about it? Well, I think Tottenham, I mean, again, I've, I've just said it's a brilliant performance and I'm about to start slagging off Tottenham. But I thought Tottenham were, were terrible. Like their, uh, their approach was so negative. Like it was kind of seeding the whole game. It was like we're we're just going to defend here and then kick it up, kick it up front. To actually only song because Kane is almost so deep as well, um, and hope that something happens for us that way. Sessegnon yeah. uh, and Doherty had bad games. And Doherty was sort of Sessegnon was getting so much abuse from Tottenham fans, but which was unfair again because he's up against Saka, who was just destroying him. You know, Saka was repeatedly destroying him in a variety of ways. He can he can beat him on either side. He can make runs that Sessegnon can't anticipate. Uh, this has to do also with Sessegnon's position in Tottenham's formation. What's he? It was hard to know what he was really supposed to do. There's no help in in front of him really, and uh, you know, Partey and Chaka are controlling the game. Um, Saka is doing all this damage on the right and then Odegaard scores this and then you've got Hugo Lloris as well yeah it's a problem Lloris throws one in you know I saw the Arsenal fans going mad with Martin Tyler um, but listen to you know Martin Tyler oh look at this you know it's like he's coming on a funeral you, you get this with Martin Tyler a lot in, increasingly in, in mm. these you know it's like oftentimes he sounds almost disappointed like it's he's tearing it's usually Liverpool is it not Liverpool fans who normally yeah, have yeah Liverpool, Liverpool fans do it but, yes. but, but everybody does it to some extent and it's uh, he has this as though he's angrily sort of tearing up his, his coupon because <laughs> the goal has gone in and he's oh yeah then but in this in this case, it was just such a weird goal. Yeah, it was clear he yeah, didn't yeah. know what had happened. And if you, you listen to how delayed the the cheer from the Arsenal fans is, mm-hmm. you know they're they're like but I mean no they're possible they're way not for the other the end of the to enter the goal. It's just like what happened from there that angle, yeah. and it's sort of moving so softly and sort of plops in and bounces in. Yeah. And everyone, well, that's that's in. But how did that happen? Yeah. And so it happened because Lloris, and it wasn't his first mistake of the game. Even if it was his worst mistake. Then I thought his on the Odegaard goal. It was also. Ball bounced twice before it crossed the goal line. I mean, sometimes you get a shot like that. I mean, it was a bit like Messi's one in the mm. against Mexico, but um, but it was I not thought, as in the corner as as Messi's goal against Mexico. The other thing is, no, it wasn't. And, and Lloris was a lot further away than Ochoa was. I feel like one. you've you've got to anticipate what he's going to do. Like Odegaard had already had a shot which Lloris had actually saved, a similar type of shot to that same side, and he's coming through, and you're like he's. There's a pretty good chance he's going to shoot here, and like you have to react quicker than that. So, Conte afterwards saying, "Oh, he's great. He's great in the dressing room," which uh, I suppose at least there's that. Yeah. But um, I mean, if he was a sub goalkeeper, he would still be in the dressing room. Do you know? Yeah. So he, he his greatness in the dressing room. You you keep that, but you just add a goalkeeper <laughs> who can save things. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, and then uh, then you're talking about that squad depth. You know what I mean? 
Then yeah. you're really talking about a squad game. Did he make any saves? Um, I thought I actually thought he'd saved the Partey one that hit the post, but it wasn't. It was just mm. he cracked it straight off the post. Ramsdale made a bunch of saves. Yeah, um, including got, got at one nil. by the supporter. Well, I mean that was just so stupid. Yeah. I mean Ramsdale was doing his Ramsdale thing. Like you could hear him. I'm pretty sure you could, it was him. You could hear screeching with uh, joy as he catches the final, the, like yeah. the last cross of the game. You could hear him. Yeah. And, you know, he, he was obviously enjoying this moment, let's say. And, and Rich- enjoying it with Richarlison. But Richarlison is crazy. Like, Richarlison, he was getting involved in, like, when he was a substitute, he was getting involved in stuff with Tommy Yasu. Like, he, so he went to sort of, inter- did you see that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He went to kind of... You block know, Tommy Asu as he was trying to take a, a throw. Or Tommy Asu blocked him from from apparently trying to meddle with some Arsenal guy who was throwing it in, and yeah. Richardson is like slapping his hand away. But like it's just there's just all this sort of so much kind of stalking around with this kind of aggressive. So Martinelli then decides to take the piss out of him by controlling the ball on his back. And <laughs> Romero's reaction to that, Neville thought uh, in commentary, it was one of the funniest things I've seen this season, to be fair. Yeah. Martinelli controls it on his back. And Romero is like, he's playing, like, said, I think it was a back four at that stage. And he just like completely jettisons all defensive uh, responsibilities and just like runs over. And I mean, I don't know what he was planning on doing. He already had a yellow card. Yeah. He wasn't just going to. It's amazing Martinelli he wasn't sent off. It was Because he was diving in for everything. Yeah. It was crazy. It was ridiculous like, stuff from, yeah. from in Romero. Yeah. Arteta took off Martinelli for fear that. Romero will will inevitably boot him Injured. up the arse, but Martinelli will either react or get injured. So it was Arteta that took him off rather than Conte taking Romero off, but it was crazy. Um, but it was Richardson and Ramsdale at the end, and, and then Richardson continues this after the game is finished, which is just ridiculous. Like Ramsdale, what Ramsdale is doing is like, you could say it's, it's juvenile or whatever, or like you shouldn't do that. But like, you also assume that fourth wall, you have to kind of, Assume the integrity of that. <laughs> the bar- you know, the, that the thousands of people there aren't going to clamber over and physically attack the players just because the player is taunting them a little bit, mm. which they've been doing to him for the whole. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that this guy like tries, you know, obviously slightly misses his kick, thank- thankfully, but uh, and scurries off. You can runs- see him. He just turns and scurries as far as, far as he can back up the steps, but presumably. Um, identified presumably um, but yeah and and Shaka was obviously trying to get involved and Arteta has to drag him away so it ends up being a, a great day for Arsenal apart from this Mudrick thing which is a real sickener because you know they'd had they'd he's really been the main club that they're, they've been the main club that he's been linked with since the summer now this guy I think is really good I mean I've seen him actually live a couple of times playing for Ukraine against Ireland and I think he actually came on weirdly as a sub in both games although quite an early like a first half sub in the one over in Poland and he is he's amazing really good yeah yeah like he's he's really quick kind of direct uh, powerful for his size you know um has only scored 12 goals in mm-hmm. his career and is now 22. You're kind of like, well, it's good, but like... Some he, good goals, the one against Celtic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, look, he looks really good. Arsenal had worked out a deal to um, to sign him after long uh, haggling with Shakhtar. Chelsea come in and just say, what will you, What would you like? And it's a 100 million euro deal, right? It's, it's like, uh, uh, it adds up to 100 million euros and an eight-year Eight and a half year or seven and a half year contract with an, with an extra year's option. Um, he's unveiled at Stamford Bridge yesterday 
and with a Ukrainian flag wrapped around him, which I thought was interesting, given what we heard from the Chelsea fans like last Wednesday or whatever oh, it was. Yeah. As in chanting for Roman Abramovich, Abramovich, the return of Roman Abramovich. Yeah. Roman Abramovich, the um, sanctions, uh, sanctioned oligarch. Uh, although, um, didn't Zelensky ask for Abramovich not to be sanctioned in the United States because he was saying that he had asked, he had played some role in peace talks? Remember, we were remember sort of that talking peace talks about story, peace, yeah. peace talks, Abramovich is in peace talks. Um, that, you know, Zelensky seemed to be saying, well, you know, Roman, uh, there are worse out there than mm. this particular oligarch. I mean, with all these, with the sort of oligarch situation in Russia and Ukraine, it's obviously hard for us to speak with any real authority about, uh, about what's going on there. What 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 there's also uh, here today, though, and I think just shed a bit of, of light on this Mudrick process, because you saw Mudrick, he, he didn't look like, wow, this is the best thing mm. ever. Now, maybe there are there are cultural differences. It could it could be that, you know, in Ukraine, you don't necessarily smile at happy moments of, of your life. Mm. <laughs> you know, the, maybe there's a sort of... Uh, a more reserved attitude at mm -hmm. such moments. But uh, I see there's a statement uh, which has been released by FC Shakhtar President Rinat Akhmetov. Major donation following Mikhailo Mudrik's transfer to Chelsea. I can confirm Mikhailo Mudrik is leaving FC Shakhtar to play at Chelsea Football Club in the English Premier League, the strongest national championship. Uh, more importantly, I want to thank the entire civilized world for helping Ukraine. We can only talk about Ukrainian football because of the Ukrainian army, the Ukrainian people, and the tremendous support we've had during this incredibly difficult time. The only way we can defeat the evil that has come to our homes is by working together. I'm donating $25 million, that's $1 billion, uh, Ukrainian hryvnia, of the transfer fee to help our soldiers, defenders, and their families. The money will be used to cover different needs from providing medical and prosthetic treatment and psychological support to meeting specific requests that will be managed by an independent professional team that will work with the Azov-style defenders, their families, care providers, and volunteers. This is the beginning of the heart of Azov-style, a uh, brand new project that will help the Mariupol defenders and families of fallen soldiers. Their acts of bravery are unparalleled. It is their sacrifice and courage to help contain the enemy in the first months of the war, providing the platform for the inevitable Ukrainian victory. I'm happy for Mikhailo and very proud of him. He has shown that talent and hard work can make the impossible possible. I have no doubt he will shine at Chelsea and across Europe. On the other hand, I've never made it a secret. My dream is to win European trophies. This means we need players like Mikhailo in Ukrainian clubs competing at the European level. Unfortunately, that is impossible at the moment because of this unjust war being waged against us by the Russian Federation. But I remain utterly confident we will defeat the aggressor. One of the things I look forward to most after our victory is Mikhailo returning with his Chelsea team for a friendly match in Donbass Arena in a Ukrainian Donetsk. We must do everything we can to bring this day closer. We are forever indebted to our soldiers. That's uh, Rino Akhmedov, who is the president of Shakhtar, the richest man in Ukraine, um, the owner of the Azov-style factory where the, they had a siege in uh, Mariupol, and a lot of other things besides. Um, you know, um, I feel that Mikhailo Mudrik didn't have much choice about where he ended up going in this transfer deal. I kind of feel as though uh, once that higher bid came in from Chelsea, it wasn't the case of turning to him and saying, hey, listen, you know, uh, what do you feel about this? I think it was kind of, this is where you're going to go. And thanks for, uh, mm. thanks for all well, the Martin memories. Tyler said it in commentary yesterday. He said, oh, uh, Mudrick apparently asked Arsenal if he would match the Chelsea bid. 
Like yeah. They said they were unwilling to. And that was, yeah, I mean, that. For, from Mudrick's point of view, I mean, you go to Imagine Arsenal. Imagine match, not beat, you know. You're playing with Zinchenko, um, who is a senior player in the Ukrainian national team, um, often on the same flank of the pitch, um, in a team that seems to be uh, very well organized, well structured, and that you've been planning to join for months. And now you're suddenly... Um, well, I'm not quite sure exactly where he fits in at Chelsea because, I mean, Chelsea's options are, uh, you know, uh, in his position, uh, Pulisic, Hutchinson, um, you know, they've got Ziyech, they've got Hudson-Doy, Sterling, uh, Fofana, up front, Fofana, Broja, Lukaku. Well, listen, he's got seven and, and a half years to break into the team. So Gavin Byrne emailed on that to say he'd be interested on your thoughts on this gamble of tying these players down to long-term deals because there's been a few of these at Chelsea lately. I've read that this amortises the transfer fee over a longer period and therefore has potential benefits for FFP. It also gives Chelsea power when it comes to selling these players. However, it's not a massive gamble on these players retaining their value and not being flops. Woodward and United were heavily criticised for, inverted commas, protecting the value of players through consistent contract extensions however you end up bleeding money in wages for players other clubs won't pay your expected value for I've seen it described as classic private equity thinking accumulate as many assets with potential for significant future growth as possible and never sell low that was in the athletic but that hasn't has it ever worked in football it's not a huge risk tying vast amounts of expensive assets down to big long-term contracts secondly curious as to what you think is happening with the players taking these long-term deals so what what they are what's in it for the player essentially well what's in it in the player is is, is like he's <laughs> i mean let's say he, he guaranteed no longer, income he no longer needs to worry about the uh, financial future or that you know um he, he's, he's as, long, as long as it's a good deal it, it can work against people if 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 you remember the last dance um Scotty Pippen one of the characters in that yeah signed a long term deal and they, it's big in american sports where Todd Bowley has come from Scotty, Scotty Pippen, a young Scotty Pippen was happy to sign a lucrative whatever it was seven year deal this looks like oh, this is more money than I've ever dreamed of yeah. uh, a couple of years later Scotty Pippen is one of the best players in the league yeah. and wants a lot more money and the Bulls are saying sorry mate you're on the money so it doesn't but in this case presumably given you know the profile of his player etc he's on the sort of money that he will probably still be happy to be on in a few years time so the bigger thing mm. is why would the why would the club tie themselves down to this when this guy could get injured anything could happen over the next seven years well the club I mean if he if he was to get injured for instance then I guess they have insurance for that maybe. I don't mean insure, injured and and ruled out of like his career ends I mean injured oh, Alex uh, Oxlade-Chamberlain stuff. yeah exactly he just there's loads of reasons why a player doesn't fulfil their potential yeah. and uh, over a long number of years is you're, you're increasing the amount the, the amount of risk there is of course. in player not succeed. Of course, it's a, it's a it's a big risk. So I mean, you know, you've no way of knowing really. I mean, as as I say, like I've seen um, him play a couple of times, and he looks really good. Um, you don't know if he if he will be able to sustain that for eight years. Nobody has any idea what's going to happen in the next game. Never mind eight years down the road. You know what I mean? So. That, that clearly that is a risk, but they're in a position where they've spent two hundred seventy-eight million pounds in the summer and one hundred forty-three million already in this uh, January, so that needs to be smoothed out a little bit. Mm. So that's why they're signing these people on 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 such you know if you if if because the transfer fee is accounted for in in, in installments, mm. it, oh, that doesn't mean it's necessarily paid in installments, but it's in the accounts, it will appear spread over the length of the So there is contract. a financial fair play element yes. to this. So, so, so if it's over a seven and a half or eight and a half year, let's say seven and a half year period, then that will obviously result in more smaller installments over a longer time. So the 
figure is not as big. But, but of course, this is all on the credit card. You know what I mean? This is all, it's not like it makes it go away. It's just all there and it reduces your future ability. Bit, that's what I'm thinking. In those, in those years where already this money is accounted for, well, what, do you just sign nobody in those seasons or how does that all work here? Yeah, um, and, and they've got... Or maybe you're not that worried about financial fair play as, you know, are you, are you maybe looking at it and thinking, well, we've seen other cases where it's it's a, it's a difficult one to for say, UEFA to make stick. Yeah, let's, let's just say there's a couple of levers I could pull here. You yeah. know, there's a couple of economic levers I could pull that maybe might be able to, you know, iron out any potential difficulties in that area. The squad, though, is just so bloated. Like, when you look at it, it's just like, they're going to have to give these players away. They're going to have to pay a lot of these players to leave. Mm. You know, that's that's another expense that's coming down the line. It's because, like, you look at it, it's not two players in every position, it's three or four. That's, that's the situation they've now got. Um, not all of those players are currently at Chelsea, but in, in terms of first-team players who they have under contract, it's, you're talking three or four players per position. So that's way too, it's way too many. And obviously, if everybody knows that, it's not like mm. they're going to be saying, well, you know. And yet the best number nine that Danny Murphy could come up with on Match of the Day 2 last night was, oh, no, they have a number nine, Aubameyang. Um, <laughs> I was like, really? <laughs> is this the answer? Well, yeah, Aubameyang is clearly not, is, he's not really, a pro, he's not a, a number nine in the sense I'm sure that people usually mean when they say that word. He's, he's a, he is a goal poacher. He's an old-fashioned goal poacher. He would be the little man in a big man, little man combo. You know, in in old mm. old terms, old money. Um, obviously they've but but you know on the other hand, you you have players now like um, um, Joao Felix and Mudrik. I mean these these are exciting players. So it will be interesting to see uh, what kind of football they can produce. Um, you said Aubameyang's not your classic number nine, so he's not a an Evan Ferguson type can. Is that what you're saying? Wow. Another tidy performance from young Evan on, on the weekend. What a performance! Um, you thought he was good? I thought he was brilliant. And this is, you know, obviously he didn't actually score in this game. He didn't really, he had one chance in the first half, which he put too close to Allison. But his all-round play, the movement, the pressing, the hold-up play, yeah. the link-up play. The, f- the feather touch he has. He's got a lovely first touch, which the, is half the battle for oh, a striker. And the, 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 the turn and pass for the second goal by um, Solly March. Mm. Reminded me of Rooney. It was Rooney-ish. Like a, the 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 way that he took the ball, turned immediately, and played that pass so quickly. That's the that's what Rooney was doing when he was when he was good. The weight on the ball was beautiful, and he took he takes no time to to do it, and obviously it results in. I mean, because the, the the finish I still don't understand. It was like <laughs> I don't know how he manages to kind of clip that so hard. He had no choice, Ken. The ball <laughs> in was so good for Ferguson that he literally could do nothing else with it except score. I mean, he, he could try to miss, I suppose, but yeah. it just wouldn't have been possible. I mean, this this all maybe wouldn't be happening if there hadn't been this falling out with Leandro Trossard at the, uh, between the Zerbi and Trossard. Mm-hmm. So there was a statement from Trossard's agent, uh, Josie, I mean, it looks like the Irish word, core. C-O-M-H-A-I-R. But I'm sure that's, I'm guessing it's not. I'm guessing he pronounced it some other way. But um, he says, uh, he released a statement saying, you know, before Leandro went to the World Cup, um, Brighton wanted to sign him up. That didn't happen. After the World Cup, there was an altercation between Leandro and a player in training over a trivial matter. I don't know which player. Since then, the manager no longer speaks to Leandro, which is obviously not conducive to the atmosphere, nor is it performance-oriented. Andrew still had a starting place against Southampton and Arsenal, but against Everton, he was on the bench. He wasn't in the squad, I don't think, for the Liverpool game. 
Um, he was also not included in the five substitutions that took place at the time. This, without any explanation. Well, I mean, did he need an explanation? Apparently, it was Madrid didn't speak. Can to him. He's, al- he's also. Can you imagine me looking on? Because I remember uh, Andrew Moore, another Irish player, mm. former Bray Wanderers player. He came off the bench. He was one of the players that did come off the bench. Mm. And he, his reaction was, he said he was kind of looking at the manager, going, "Are, are you, are you sure? <laughs> this is this Crossroads kind of sitting there, give me daggers, you know." <laughs> Andrew Moore didn't say that about Crossroads. Don't, yeah, don't want to get the young lad in trouble. Yeah. But he did say like, he was very surprised to come on ahead of some of the players that were there. So, but essentially, the Moran. Ferguson duo is pushing Trossard out of the club. Well, Trossard seems to be looking for a transfer. I mean, he is looking for a transfer. Um, these problems sound a bit strange. Like, in the run-ups of the game against Middlesbrough uh, for the FA Cup, Leandro had already indicated twice he had problems with his calf. This is the reason why he stopped training. This was incidentally in consultation with the medical staff. The manager told Leandro he had to train separately. Last Monday, the manager humiliated Leandro in, Leandro in grip and indicated he no longer wanted to see him. A manager who has not communicated directly with his player for four weeks is really incomprehensible. Incidentally, this is the second time he's used the word incidentally in uh, two paragraphs. It is also the manager who has indicated several times that a transfer is the most convenient solution. So, a bit of double talk here from Deserby, the agent is saying, because Deserby in, in public is like, oh, try, you know, mm. I'd love to have him in this squad. That would be great. Um, anyway, um, he, this is a guy who scored a hat trick in Anfield the last time they played Liverpool. Deserby, by the way, was so dismissive of the agent in, in his pre match interview. Mm. He was he was like, yeah, so yeah, his agent is, I don't even, is he some sort of basketball guy or something? <laughs> and then starts just critiquing what he had said. And, yeah. So it, it looks like tr- whatever way it's happening, whether he's being pushed out or whether he's throwing a strap to try to get out, he might be going to Spurs or somewhere like that. Yeah, Spurs have offered a 12 million or, or there's a report that they've suggested 12 million might be and Brighton have said that's insulting. So come back to us when you've got a better idea. Um, Evan Ferguson anyway is, I guess, profiting from this situation. I mean, he may be in the team anyway, but obviously it reduces mm. the number of potential and Andrew options. Warren's profiting. Everyone's profiting. Um, and he played, yeah, really well. Uh, Sonny March, two goals. Um, then Welbeck uh, comes on to Pele, the last goal. Wele, they were calling him. <laughs> comes on to... Wele. Wele. Ah, come on, that's good now. Wele. Could have gone for Waza there as well. Waza. The Gascoigne night, Euro 96 goal. It's very similar to that. Yeah. Against Colin Henry. Uh, yeah. It was more of on the move. But there is a Waza. Yeah, that's there true. There already is a Waza. There's a yeah. well-known Waza yeah. you already mentioned on the show. Um, There's no Waza. And and I've I've seldom watched a game where a Liverpool game where I was more convinced they were from the beginning they were going to lose the game, <laughs> and they just got it was nil nil at halftime. They've been absolutely hammered. It was a miracle that they weren't losing at halftime, and then immediately after uh, halftime they conceded the first, and then the second, and just uh, there was nothing. You know there was. There was that one header by Oxford Chamberlain. That was it. There was, you know, a header which where he actually almost fell over into the ball. And this is a real problem, you know. Klopp afterwards was saying, "Well, we tried to change things." I said, "Well, what did? You, what was the change?" I mean, it seemed the same. It seemed the same to me. He said, "My players were. It, I could see from the team they weren't really convinced by it, which sounded very bad." I thought mm. from his because this is a guy saying they're not. You know, I I've told them what to do. They didn't do it. Yeah. And that's not that's not the kind of thing that you usually have heard from him over the years. Um, I mean, in terms of the, this the tactical change, the change in organisation they were going for, I was like, well, well, I, well, what is it? I mean, it's the same. It's the same as always. The defensive line is is pushed up. Um, the fullbacks are are pushed further ahead. 
the, the front three. They always play, I mean, he's very lucky. He has sometimes not played a front, front three. But the idea with the front three is is basically a defensive one. Because, in you know, like, say if you read Pep Linder's Grima Wormtongue book about... Uh, you know, intensity is the title of Can the Can I book. just say, the Greamer Wormtongue uh, reference last week completely baffled me. And it was only... Uh, uh, you obviously don't pay any attention to Elon Musk's uh, no, tweets. I don't. I, or the Lord... It's from the Lord of the Rings mm. one. I didn't have a clue. I mean, I just felt like he... We got, let him get away with it last time. I was like, just too... I just didn't get it. Greamer Wormtongue is, is a massive... Um, is, a, is a massive meme. I mean, he is like a... You know, you know the guy I'm talking about, Owen. Well, I only know because I googled it as yeah. we were doing it last week. I was like, who's he on? Who's he on? He's the little Slevein who's whispering into the ear of the um, sort of desiccated-looking king yeah. of Rohan or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And he and it's because of him that everything's gone wrong. You mm-hmm. see, so you, so you see, you can apply it to a variety of situations. Obviously, with Pep Liners, it's pretty obvious. Uh, so he, uh, you know, he talks about the front three. It's, it's all about because three, the three forwards can defend five or six opposing players, and that's why they. That's why he always wants to go with the front three. I mean, he has done like say when they beat, beat Tottenham earlier in the season, it was Nunez and Salah were a, a strike pair, but he doesn't like that because it's sort of. It doesn't work. It, the way he wants to play the game, this doesn't work for the defensive side of the game. You need to have those three. But of course, nothing is working now. You know, they brought Nunez in and he's got this great, he, he wasn't playing on Saturday. He's got this great energy and runs around very fast, but like doesn't know what he's doing. You know, com- compared to someone like Firmino, who's one of the best at, at understanding, okay, where do I need to be? Where do I need to block? Who do I need to challenge? That's all high level calculations that are happening all the time in his brain that, you know, are difficult to see, I suppose, when you're watching the game, but take him out and you see the difference. Um, you know, Chamberlain. So so it was the same. What what changes? What change was this? It was a high line, loads of space behind, loads of space in front as well, because your, def- your midfielders don't close the space anymore. And just being picked apart by a team that's really well organized, really confident, full of energy, full of, com- uh, full of you know, just playing really well. And uh, really ugly. Um, and as to whether they can turn that around, I mean, don't they have to play? No, they've been drawn against Brighton in the Cup, but that, that's only if they get past Wolves, who are also resurgent. How likely is it that Jurgen Klopp is manager of Liverpool at the start of the next season? I think it's a 50-50. I really do. Because I think it's a case that Klopp might decide, OK, this isn't working anymore. You know, I don't think that they're going to sack Jurgen Klopp because... He's been the best. No. He's been the best manager that would they've be had. Completely and utterly insane. It would be crazy, <laughs> but you know, it would be crazy at this point. By the way, this, like, I have seen people say, "Oh, he can decide when he wants to leave." No manager can do that. Like, that's a very well, they can, but fans, Liverpool fans, will turn against Jurgen Klopp if he's there for five or six years. Oh, completely. Oh, completely. Like, every, all, all supporters, are, even if they think at the time of success, they're yeah, not going to do it. I'll never forget this but, guy. I, you know, I, I doubt it's going to, of course, at the moment, it would be absolutely madness and really disrespectful to, <laughs> to sack Jurgen Klopp. It would be a bad news story for football. It, 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 you know, it definitely wouldn't take as long as five or six years either. I mean, look at Everton. We'll get to them in a second. But like, I, I do sometimes wonder though if we're, if, if he's seeing a bit of a, if we're in a situation where it's like some of his shortcomings are being exposed here, like the, the he was saying, we've changed the organization. It's like, you haven't. It's always the same. And that's okay. I mean, it has been effective. Like this way of playing works if you have players who can play this way. But what he doesn't demonstrate is a flexibility in situations where actually he doesn't have the players 
to do this, right? I mean, he if he, he he can't the 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 defensive line is the most obvious issue. It's like you actually can't get away with this, right? I know what you I know what you're trying to do, and obviously it does work, and it is a fundamentally sound way of playing, but not with these guys. So do you have to accept at some point? That this isn't gonna, this isn't gonna work. That you're gonna have to find another way to do it. I mean, the example is like, um, well, t- Ten Hag at the start of the season. Ten Hag is a good example, and mm-hmm. and in fact, that's one of the things we mentioned with um, with Miguel and, and Mark. The, the adaptability that he that he has shown with a with a squad which isn't ideal, but it's not like he's trying to do. Uh, he's just set set on doing this one thing. Look, De Gea, you have to be our playmaker from the back. That's just mm. the way it has to be. You know, he's not doing that. Mm. Um, and Klopp has a lot more credit in the bank than Eric Ten Hag did after two uh, defeats in two games at the start of the Premier League season. You know? that, I think I think the best recent example is Real Madrid winning the Champions League last season, including at the expense of Liverpool. Uh, and the the thing about their run was all of the different things that they demonstrated, all, all of the different ways of playing. Now, Real Madrid are a tricky example to use because the, the basic thing about Real Madrid is that they are full of really good players, right? So, you know, you've got like Benzema, Modric, and these kinds of guys are like among the very best in the world. So that the fact that they can come up with things in games to, to, to win them, okay, you, you, not every team has players like that. But... They were able to do different things at different times, uh, depending on what they needed, depending on the situation in the game. You know, against Liverpool, they, they defended and, and wasted time. You know, once they, they, they in the final, they were very uh, conservative. They just hit sort of some long passes, got the goal, and then just defended and wasted time. That was the whole game. Uh, but in the um, game against, say, for instance, PSG, when they, when they knock PSG, they chase PSG so much. Remember that that how they turned that game around was Benzema knocking down Donnarumma. Probably should have been a foul. But, you know, Benzema is doing this, right? So what it shows is a, is a kind of a variation, you know, which, which I think Liverpool haven't really demonstrated. Klopp hasn't really demonstrated. He kind of keeps trying to do the same thing. He's like, oh, I don't know why this thing isn't working. You know, well, we can we can kind of all see some of the problems, but also, if it's not going to work, maybe you need to do something else. Yeah, yeah. It's is like um, that's that's a question that that arises. Could be worse for Liverpool supporters. They could be in Everton's position right now. Well, is this is this a preview of what will be happening at, at Liverpool in three weeks? You know, because <laughs> because thing, things move fast these days, <laughs> and so Everton are in this horrific situation. So so again, this is one of the worst results. This is they've lost to. Uh, the bottom place team of the league who have now gone level with them on points. Mm-hmm. They've lost their, for four matches in a row at home for the first time since 1958, apparently. Um, uh, Lampard, I saw, I think it was Daniel Sorry, had the, has lost 53% of his matches as Everton manager, which is more than any other Everton manager. And he's not even the one that the fans are angry with yeah. because it's actually the directors and... Uh, there was a story that that some fan had had, had uh, put Everton's CEO Denise Baxendale in a headlock, um, which is just crazy. I mean, I haven't heard anything uh, more about this. That you could see then that the, they were showing the Everton directors, the top directors, were not at the game because they had been informed of threats to their safety and so on. Now, if, you know, looking at what Everton fans say about this online, I can see that there's a, a large body of opinion saying that this is a PSYOP, 
this is another one of Bill Kenwright's theatrical productions. Flourishes. You know what I mean? And it's all about uh, pulling the wool over people's eyes and so on. What what we can see, though, is videos, repeated videos of Everton fans uh, arguing with their players as they are leaving I the I saw ground. the Yerry Yer- Mina one where he's actually out of his car standing up patiently being shouted at by a couple of supporters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says at one point, I'll give my life for this club. And which I thought laid it on a bit thick there, Yerry. But maybe that maybe that is what they need to hear at this point for you to get out of this situation. Um, Anthony Gordon, who gave away the goal, the, the winning goal to James Ward-Prowse, with a, he didn't give away the goal. He gave away the free kick, mm. but it was crazy. Don't give away that free kick. This, you know, this guy's so dangerous, and he pushes over. I can't remember which say it may have been Ward Prowse himself. Pushed him over in a in a perfect position for Ward Prowse to then score a brilliant free kick of the type everybody knows he can score. Yeah. And I'm sure Lampard was going on and on about don't give away a free kick in this mm. position. He just gives it away so stupidly. Uh, he was one of the players. That's I saw. one for the players. Well, he was he was there. Give away a free well, in that is. area, and that's one for the players. I Let's do. be honest. I have, Come on, I, I have you're with Frank on this one. I have a bit of sympathy for Frank. <laughs> you know, what are you doing? Just yeah. let him run. Like, what's yeah. he going to do? Uh, not as much damage as you will from the dead ball. He was also there in his car outside, being pursued Gordon. by you know, yeah, Gordon, you know, and and people screaming at him and abusing him. I mean, this this is a guy they could have sold. Was Lampard the Chelsea manager when they didn't sell Hudson Odoi to Bayern for like forty million? I think he think he was. I'm not sure. Um, in hindsight, obviously, they should have taken that money. Yeah. And I wonder if Everton also think maybe Anthony Gordon to Chelsea to start this season mightn't have been such a bad uh, move. At the yeah. time, it seemed, well, we've got to hang on to this guy. He's he's our hope of staying up. Well, it hasn't really worked out that way. Um, they, you know, but what it struck me was the way that the Everton fans who had sort of who were who were like you know surrounding his car. His car had to stop at some lights or something. They chased up and were there. When they were abusing him, they were singing the abuse in the form mm. of a chant. Yo, I fit too well and shit. <laughs> Even though he's right there, whatever they want, they said. But but also the banners at Goodison Park were like in r- rhyming doggerel, yeah. and also like have four hundred words. I just thought it was they were they were they, were, they were, obviously someone decided that we should do banners in like the form of four line verses. Yeah, they're all yeah. very neatly. Uh, there's a bit of an Owens poems vibe to it. They were it was it was Owens poems on a mass scale. Yeah, yeah. At Goodison, like at the uh, on, on uh, the, the the fluttering banners of a revolutionary uh, crowd, <laughs> and they they're all hosting these old sample banner. Mushiri's decisions and Bill's lies not acceptable for a club of our size, mm-hmm. a fan base that's loyal but always ignored. It's time. To sell up and sack the board. No, that's that's adhering to most of the rules. I don't know of if you've ever been at a, a wedding in Northern Ireland, but this is a big thing. You know, the the speeches after weddings they do right. Yeah, people just stand up and go. You know, <laughs> Ken is my friend. He's quite simply the greatest, or whatever. You're going to continue that one. No, R- I rhyme with that. I've nothing else. I've, I, what rhymes so, the greatest? Sometimes for meetings, he Something can be the latest. He can be the latest. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 You've, you've started off on a tough one there with the uh, eight. Probably. Rhyme. Listen, what I'm saying is. I d I don't know what I don't know what it's about, but it it's it, it, I think it just it enters into the, into a culture, you yeah. know. Northern Irish Protestant weddings, they're the weddings I've been at, just rhymes for some reason. Now yeah. now in the similar way, Everton, Goodison Park, you you can't say anything unless it rhymes. Yeah. Yeah, well it's I, I think it's it's I guess nice in a way, you know, that they're that they're doing it this way. But I feel also it lacks a bit of the zing of like a a more traditional banner. I mean, one that I remember that sticks in my memory. It's it's indelibly imprinted in my Three memory. Rats. Is, Fuck off, Rafa! You fat cop, I cunt. <laughs> okay. 
So there's just something about that, which it sort of gets to the point. There's an economy of expression, mm. which sometimes these, 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 the Particularly when you're, when you're trying to get rid of someone from their job or, you know, getting them to sell up in a, a rather large business transaction. I just don't know that dog roll does it, you know? Uh, you don't know. It's well, they did combine this th- with, you know, the whatever atmosphere was created that apparently was a security concern. So, yeah, there, there, there's, there's an edge to it as well. Maybe well, look, we don't need the banners to all... No, it, it, is, it is an edge. Like, I mean, if you're an Everton player, you'd think this is... God, Horrible situation. Yeah, this is, I mean, of course, the fans might say, well, you know, maybe you could show that in your performances on the field. You know, maybe you could let, let, let fear be the energy. You know, mm-hmm. people use different things uh, as, as that fuel. Let fear be your fuel. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's very difficult to see Arsenal play one day without Arsenal on the bench. He's going to ruin the club, fam. He's going to ruin the club, blood. I'm telling you, fam. But up and down the land, you do sense a genuine appreciation for the way this Arsenal team play. They were perfect. It's turning. It's turning, blood. Did you hear the booze at full time? Seriously, shut the fuck up tonight. I'm not in no mood for no little dickheads chatting shit. We love to have him there all the time, but we all know that's not going to happen. One day he's going to have to go. Spineless! Where were they in the second half? Spineless! No fucking character! No fucking leadership! Where does that boil down to? It boils down to the fucking manager! He's finished! It will be hard. He's not thinking of leaving one day. He was a great manager. He's gone. He's gone. I don't. I, it will happen eventually. We all know it, but I, I don't see it. Arsenal Football Club. Man. For me, the day I will see Arsenal play without Arsenal on the bench, it's going to be weird. Don't, 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 don't,
Arsene Wenger's team, every bit as good as the manager's words. He had no doubts. They are the champions. They have taken the title away from Manchester United. And they have done it here at Old Trafford. It does not get more conclusive than that. We're joined by the independents, Miguel Delaney. Miguel, how are you? Not too bad, thanks. And oh. formerly of the independent, Mark Critchley, now of The Athletic. Mark, congrats on the, the new gig. Hope it's going well for you. Yeah, thanks very much. It's uh, it's going fine. So everyone seems to be, all the comments seem to be quite concerned as to whether I would still be able to appear on second captains. But <laughs> I haven't actually checked that yet, so I'm, well, I'm here anyway. Well, listen, yeah, let's get let, let's get this one in anyway, this appearance, and we'll take it from there. <laughs> you guys were both at the Manchester Derby at the weekend, so let's start there. Mark, are United in the title race? <laughs> Well, uh, they, they are nine points behind Arsenal, Robin. So um, I don't know. Whether, uh, I don't know whether you can count that really as a as, as in a title race. Uh, They're playing Arsenal next week, are they not? Could be six. They points. are, so it could reduce to six at that point. Um, it still feels like the gap is significant to the point where, um, you know, we, we wouldn't normally be talking about it. Maybe, but I, I think if you remember back a couple of seasons ago, twenty twenty one. I think it was around this time. Um, they were top of the league then under Solskjaer and a bit like everything during the Solskjaer reign, um, it just didn't feel sustainable. And I think this one, yeah, maybe it just like hits a little differently now because it's rather than appearing at the top of the pile out of nowhere, it feels like it's more of a kind of something that has been sustained, that has gradually come into place. And, and you look at a team that is organized that is working towards a plan that um you know that is putting in performances that that warrant the position in the table and position is still third and it's still um nine points behind the lead fourth now i think is haven't newcastle oh, right, passed yeah. about newcastle have played a game more yes yeah sorry well i think that's a you know they are a top four team at the minute they're playing like a top four team if you look at like the historical comparisons of points per game all that sort of thing that's the that's the pace they're setting at the moment. And so I think um, I had to write a piece on this, just asking whether they're in a title race before this game, like last week. And, um, you know, you, you would think, okay, well, it's probably a bit early now, but if, if they get through City and then they get through Arsenal, every you know, it's all there for them. And um, they're only halfway there yet. And I think that's when the serious talk can start. But look, I think there's, there's some elements that are still like a little touch short, like, I think Brentford and Fulham have scored more goals than them. They're still very reliant on Marcus Rashford, who's in brilliant form. Um, but there's there's positive signs and things are moving in the right direction. That's the first time you've been able to say that for a long time. Uh, Miguel, this is the first time they've... I mean, they've, they've won, I think, nine in a row, which I guess Mourinho did this at some point, 16, 17 season. Um, but this is the first time they've won 12 out of 13 since the 12-13 season, when they won the league and Robert Van Persie was scoring all those goals in that autumn, which is like, I mean, that, I mean, that, that in itself, I mean, this is the, you know, in that sense, this is the best run of form since Alex Ferguson was the manager. Yeah. And, and as Max referenced there, it feels like it's coming as part of a kind of a, a wider context or a, you, you can see a, a better sense of plan. There's an obvious ideal Ten Hag is working towards and it does feel like he's gradually getting the pieces in place, maybe with some way to go. I mean, just as regards to the question of the title, when I was doing like prep work for um, all the pieces ahead of la- this weekend, which had the, the two derbies, you know, it was put to me that United feel like they could potentially overtake Arsenal and beat City in any given day. 
but maybe not uh, keep up with a, a full city over the course of a season. Now, I suppose whether they can win a title, almost some of that or some of the feeling has come down, has come from the idea that this could be, say, a distorted season, given we've had the World Cup in the middle of it, where the points aren't as high. But then I suppose what's happened on the other end, where Arsenal are currently on, on course for 99 points. And well, I, think, I think Arsenal are a better team than Leicester were in 2016, even if they don't win the title, because I had more of a freak about it. But there is almost, a, I mean, I, I don't think Arsenal can sustain it to the level of 99 points. But there is almost this sense of momentum about them that can happen and suddenly can take you sufficiently clear before anyone, um, so no one's quite close enough when it matters, which is what happened to Leicester. Um, but I suppose so much of this will maybe start to be revealed on Sunday. Uh, but certainly, whatever happens, I think, and if we are starting this on a positive note, you can, you can clearly see regardless of kind of the variations of results and all that, that uh, Arsenal and Manchester United are very much on the right track through kind of, I suppose, some similar principles. Arsenal obviously took a much longer term view, but I suppose put very bluntly, it's through um, backing of the manager. Yeah. Even the way Ten Hag, I mean, the way, and I did think he handled the Ronaldo situation very well, but he was also given clear backing in that. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about the, you, you can see something coming together for Ten Hag, can you describe just what it is? Because it's not exactly what, it, I mean, it's clearly nothing like his, uh, you know, the Ajax team, which is why he's been hired by Manchester United. It's, this is a different type of team, like in the sense that he has, you know, I guess the, the, a good example of it is, is in the summer, the player that he tried to sign all summer was Frankie de Jong. He ended up signing Casemiro, a, a very different player. And it's worked, yeah. out, it's worked out really well. So what he's proved is a kind of a certain adaptability or a willingness to say, okay, well, if I can't do it that way, I'm going to do it this way. What, how, how would you describe what he is doing? What is this team that he's putting out? What does it look like? Well, I suppose obviously he's trying to work to his Ajax ideal or something close to that. And that's something United aren't there yet. But in the meantime, it's about making the players understand all the principles of that, I suppose, which is basically kind of a something close to a 4-3-3, although really is more, more fluid than that, to the point where in a year or two, they're able to play it effort, effortlessly. Whereas before then, in periods like now, it's about kind of the broad idea. But more importantly, especially given the way, like the kind of tactical school he's from, um, it's uh, the, the positioning game, as I put it. And that's something that really came across on Saturday um, and was a total contrast to when they got hammered 6-3 by City in October. I mean, in, in October, they just didn't look like a team with the, that were anyway coherent. There were so many gaps. It was like players didn't yet fully understand their role, which is probably natural given he at that point he, he, hadn't been, he hadn't yet had two months of competitive fixtures. It was still only what, a month and a half into the Premier League season. Now he's much further down the road and you can see even if th this team wouldn't yet be able to play, say like, what, what, what's a great Ajax example, say the quarterfinal against Real Madrid or Juventus uh, in the 2018-19 season. Um, they, they've got the, the basics of Ten Hag's position. But what was also interesting on Saturday, well, what he made, a, we, look, we asked him about this in his press conference, whereas he made a point himself saying, for, for all everyone talks about tactics, one of the most important things is actually mental resolve. And he accepted that 
the way they came back against City, he probably wouldn't have got out of the team two months ago, whereas this is something he's been very conspicuously working on. Now, he didn't go into detail, I suppose, how to even act up. I suppose with all these sort of things, it, there's almost a bit of um, an intangible about it, where it's almost about the, the charisma of the manager and what he conditions to his decisions. And it does feel a, ste- a, a, a psychological steal about United now to go with, I suppose, a deeper understanding of where Ten Hag wants them to be at any given moment on the pitch. But just in relation to Casemiro, I mean, this is actually, I think Saturday might have been the first time I've seen him live for United. I've seen him from Madrid and Brazil a few times. But like in a different context, I think you know this more. And one of the things that really struck about Saturday was he's like a magnet in terms of kind of, the, even on a rare occasion when he lost the ball, which is just before one of Rashford's chances, he immediately won it back to set, to set up a ball for Fernandez who then released Rashford. And I think the other side of it, and this is something that kept, became evident in the World Cup, um, and you maybe didn't see it so much around Madrid because he had Cruz and Modric there, but the quality of his true balls. Um, he, he did it so many times for Brazil in the World Cup. And here, of course, it was his true ball that set up that controversial goal for... for <laughs> yes. Yeah, we, we've gotten there already, Mark. I mean, you'd have to say Marcus Rashford for a player who was not involved in active play did a very good impression of a player who was involved in active play. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Look, I think um, like, I, I get that by the law that it was allowed and having like read and studied that part of the law all weekend as well, you're trying to pick out bits where but I, I can understand the decision the officials have come to in the end, reading the, the, the wording of it, but the spirit of it, I don't think perhaps was completely right on. Um, that's That to me is interfering with play. Um, if if you're running through on goal and you've got a, a goalkeeper who doesn't know which of the, which of the players in red are going to hit the ball and you know a defender that can't get to the ball, it it, it feels like that was... Uh, but again, the, the, the IFAB rules uh, that you're involved in active play if you're preventing an opponent from playing or being able to play the ball by clearly obstructing the opponent's line of vision or you're making an obvious action which clearly impacts on the ability of an opponent to play the ball. Like running mm-hmm. after, running after the ball and being on the ball. <laughs> <laughs> and looking like you're going to hit it up to the moment where you don't and allow someone else to, yeah. And look, I, I, think, um, I think you'll see other incidents like that through the rest of the season where goals will be ruled out or, or flags will go up or whatever because because it looked offside. And, and if it had gone the other way, I don't think maybe the VAR would have overturned. Oh, well, I mean, it, it seemed to be, it was ruled out initially on the pitch or there was a bit of confusion because of Fernandez's protest was immediate, wasn't it? And I think yeah. that was that was helpful as well because it it, it almost like forced him to, to look at it and consider um, straight away. But I, I mean, Guardiola was, <laughs> I thought the way he spoke about it afterwards, um, you know, he, he he sounded quite upset, accepting of it to the point at which he says, you know, we know what stadium we play at. And it's the same thing that he said at Anfield before. Um, he feels like when he's when he's in these games against United, against Liverpool, there's always something the City have to play just slightly better than they usually do in order to get a result. And um, look, I, I don't know really whether that stacks up, but the case on Saturday was that, I mean, that's that to me was offside. If he was accepting of it, Mark, maybe it was because he knew that once again City hadn't played that well. Now, I know he said we played great or he, we played much better than we did against Southampton, which which may be the case. I mean, it was it was a different team as well, but they didn't play well. And, you know, my feeling about that goal, I mean, we've already been talking about it. So it's like, OK, the goal shouldn't have been a goal, but Man United deserved to win the game. Like City did not. I can't I can barely remember a chance apart from the goal. So what I'm wondering is, you know, this this is like a um, 
this has been a bad... I mean, I saw an insane stat that City have like one more point than Liverpool over the last 10 matches, which just seems like, what? Like, <laughs> how can that be? <laughs> but like, uh, do they maybe have a slightly delayed case of Liverpoolitis here? Because, you know, it, Klopp is, is at the moment saying, well, you know, having denied that playing 63 matches in a season, you know, sapped <laughs> and burned out the team, he's now saying, well, clearly it did. Um, City played nearly as many games and then had the World Cup where where their players played more than anyone else, way more. And just wondering if that does maybe, is maybe catching up to them a little bit. You had Gunnigan there last week saying, well, you know, something's missing here. You know, there's there's like, I don't know what it is, but we seem a bit slack, you know, and and there it was again on on Saturday. Yeah, totally. I think um, Gunnigan's interesting because he's he's often um, almost a canary in the coal mine and he'll come out and he'll do a very short and simple interview sometimes that has a couple of lines in it that are quite telling. And he's done that in the past. And that was the case last week after after the Southampton game. And yeah, but I think your point about, I think there's two things. I think the World Cup fatigue and maybe wider fatigue dating back to last season as well. Um, yeah, that that is has been an issue. I know after the Chelsea game, you know, the one in the league recently where they were awful first half in that, you know, um, just crazy system that Guardiola put up. Um, the players felt felt pretty tired, and that's what they put the the slow performance to down in the first half. But I think there's a wider thing at City at the moment, which is um, just Guardiola's own kind of quest for control, um, while still having this new team that's put together. And yes, of course, it comes back to Harlem because he's the biggest central figure and and like the new force, if you like, in this in this side. Just, um, just on Gundogan there, it's yeah. interesting you met um, So in last in this exact fixture last season, when City won two 0 but it could have been five or six. It was one of Solskjaer's last games. Gundogan was the was the City player with the fewest touches. He had seventy one mm. uh, on on Saturday. Haaland had nineteen. Mm. Uh, and I, I know I think this is what Mark is going to go into. But I did, this is what has struck me for a while with City. And I mean, it, they could still win the title of the canter because Haaland supplies enough goals. But there is something to solve, though. I mean, I, I do agree that the the intensity and the potential exhaustion is a point too, especially in a World Cup season. But when you get right down to it, as well, like we all, Guardiola's ideal of football is basically what it's a, a, a load of number eight, preferably around five foot eight, five foot ten, uh, all were kind of constantly rotating, constantly getting the ball, creating touches, and overwhelming opposition sides or overloads. And he's now basically trying to do that with one player fewer who's just not involved by, and, and even if but he was wasn't he Miguel? like he the that what struck me about it was how many times I kept seeing Haaland popping up like in just at the front of City's half to get in the ball and like turn and play it to a winger and I'm thinking what are you, what are you doing and then the times when he is I mean I know what he's doing he's doing what he's told he's doing he's doing what he's been told to do but then um the times when he is running they don't pass and I know why they don't pass. It's not because they don't like Haaland or don't think he's going to score. It's because Pep doesn't like them to pass quick, yeah. direct direct balls. Because he's like, that's how you get counterattacked. That's how you create chaos. And that's exactly the kind of situation Haaland actually wants and yeah. would dominate it. Well, yeah. on that, I remember hearing a story um, where about the, the Barca 5-0 and like, you know, Guardiola's signature performance probably in the Spanish league and when they hammered Mourinho's Madrid. And in that game, there was something like David Villa is probably, in terms of number nines, he's probably the closest uh, that a number nine could possibly be to that kind of Guardiola Spanish ideal and that he's a finisher and he's a runner, but also his his, his touch and build-up play was good enough that he could fit into these teams and be that. 
But like, remember hearing a story that for that particular game, and Villa scores through two, I think it's two through balls, either Messi or Xavi. And apparently in the build-up to that, there have been so many games where Xavi and Iniesta refused to give him that ball because Villa wasn't making the right runs and he still hadn't got the system. And then finally it clicked in that game. Uh, and it does feel like maybe there's an element of that with Haaland now in that if obviously if, if Guardiola, if it is as ingrained as this, which we know it and, not, and as defined as this, and there's this kind of disconnect between the uh, the type of runs that Haaland is making and what the rest of the team is. And that I think that's where some... I mean, that's one of the things that really struck about Saturday, actually. The amount of um, passes that went astray for City. Right from, I mean, De Bruyne was as responsible as anyone. Mm. Yeah, well, if uh, Pep Guardiola wants to get back to his basic principles, he could do worse, Miguel, and have a look at the job his former number two, Mikel Arteta, is doing at Arsenal. Because you were at this game again as well. You had a couple of big derbies over the weekend. And what was so striking about this was how easy it all looked for Arsenal away from home in a North London derby. Yeah, they. I mean, the first half, they completely destroyed them. It was, you know, a 2-0 again. And one and could have been much higher like that uh, like that City United derby last season. I thought Arsenal should have been out of sight. half Spurs did up it. But it was in that same kind of reactive way like and one of the things that struck me there and I suppose this is you know relevant to the discussion we're having about Ten Hag as well and what United have been trying to be but it, it's all the more remarkable given that again in this fixture last season Spurs absolutely battered Arsenal finished ahead of them um, and all this comes in the context of Conte complaining like we can't possibly compete at that level where it was what's actually happened is I mean they finished ahead of Arsenal last year spent more than Arsenal in the summer in both gross and net terms, and are now way behind them. And and for me, that comes down to, yeah, like I've written this this morning. Um, it, it's almost it's it's a difference in outlook. In that three years ago, Arsenal Spurs are Champions League finalists. Arsenal were basically they're at a point where there were so many stories, but they had targets they were going for in the transfer market. No one wanted to go to them because they were considered a basket case at the time. You know, they had that that period then when they were kind of signing. David Luiz and Willian and kind of older players. But it was around then that basically Arsenal just accepted where they were, built from there, which meant kind of focusing on young players who were willing to go to the club and fully backing Arteta. And what, what that's meant ha- has been that everything at the club is unified. It's focused. It's a bit like actually Spurs under Pochettino. And when everything is unified in that way, I suppose it's kind of a, a multiplying effect because, it, it, because it's all so linked together. Whereas it feels like Spurs... They don't really know what they are at the moment. I mean, ultimately, because because they've been part of the Super League plans, because of the stadium, because they've been in the Champions League final, I suppose they have ideas that they're like a true super tier club and hence have appointed uh, a, a, a super manager in Antonio Conte. But they're not at that level. Uh, and I think it's it's why they work better when they when, when they themselves appointed a manager on the up in Pochettino, because now they've got a manager who... I mean, like, Conte is thinking there, and it, this isn't to absolve him, mm. but... But Conte's thing is basically, well, I, I did my... Because he was exactly like this at Chelsea as well, where he thought, I came in in the first season, I did my part. At Chelsea, he won a title. At Spurs, he got them into the top four. And then he's thinking, well, because now it's your turn to do your part. Back me, give me the signings. And it does feel like if he doesn't have... And this is a little bit Mourinho-like, or what, at least what Mourinho became, especially for Manchester United, where if he doesn't have his first eleven exactly as he wants it, you think, well, I can't possibly play my football now. So what he does is, is it's the opposite of Arsenal. And whereas Arsenal have this kind of integrated idea like what Ten Hag wants um, Conte is instead playing this sort of weird compromised football 
um, that's reactive and is pretty much shown up in a game like that. Just one more on, the, on that game or, or what was surrounding the game, because there was this amazing development on Saturday night when Mikhail Mudrik, who Arsenal had been chasing since the summer and was, you know, seemed nailed on to join them, has <laughs> been bought by Chelsea. One of the most enormous and staggering deals that I can remember. I mean, yeah. for, for the suddenness of it, for the giant slums <laughs> involved, and for the eight and a half year contract. I mean, it's 7.5 plus an, plus an option, an option of an extra year. Like, I mean, first of all, it's it's obviously blow to Arsenal in terms of, they, they were co- probably counting to an extent on having this guy, they, their squad is a bit thin. But what exactly are Chelsea doing here? And why, if it makes sense to sign players on 7.5-year or 8.5-year contracts, is there's everybody not doing that the whole time? Well, well it, it does sound like that's... Um, I mean, people don't do that because I suppose if you're spending that much on a player and that player turns out to be a flop, suddenly he's anchored to you for a long time and that creates other issues. That makes him difficult to get rid of. Um, now, I suppose one of the things with Chelsea is that the new hierarchy think that they've spotted... Um, potential corrections or flaws in how football, how the football market works. Maybe this is one of them. I mean, they are doing, as you say, they're doing things that I suppose would seem counterintuitive. <laughs> Not like, I mean, yeah, it's a blow to Arsenal in terms of what they want. But at the same time, you can completely understand Arsenal walking away. Like, Mudrik obviously has a lot of talent, a lot of potential, but he's only played, what, 30 career games and scored 12 career goals. That in Ukraine, uh, there isn't a great um, conversion rate from the Ukrainian league um, or even from from you know proven Ukrainian internationals to the Premier League. Now I suppose we're talking about players like Rebrov there. Obviously that's twenty years ago, mm-hmm. so things have changed. But still, I mean, it emphasizes there's an element of risk to this fixture or to this uh, signing. So you can understand, like Arsenal. What I've been told is they they agreed a deal about around fifty thousand a week for him. Uh, they were going to pay a lot less up front and less on add-ons, whereas Chelsea have more then doubles Arsenal's wage offer. So it's over 100,000 a week. And they're paying, they're guaranteeing Shakhtar 70 million euro within an extra 30 million euro on top of that, which I think the add-ons are primarily based on team performance, not individual performance. So even if he gets 40, I think it's more down to if Chelsea yeah. win a certain number of trophies. Or so I'm not, and, not he, sure. and, he, he, and he's sitting there doing a Bogard. I mean, not, not <laughs> I'm saying he's doing it, but if even if he's doing that, they still pay the add-ons. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's a remarkable situation, really. It, it does leave Arsenal with an issue and that they have to look elsewhere. But like in, that, in this sort of situation, there's always another player, especially when you're getting to those sort of figures that do really impact your budget. And it mightn't impact Chelsea's, given the way they're spending and, and given how much kind of the this hierarchy in Clear Lake are willing to back them. Um, but it would affect Arsenal, who have been, you know, because of everything we've talked about, have been much more strategic with their spending. They have spent some big fees, but the wages they're giving out are far are, are much lower than clubs like United and City. Mark, what about Jurgen Klopp, who said after the Brighton defeat, I can't remember a worse game that he's been involved in. Not only Liverpool, I really can't. Now, he's had a couple of days to think. Maybe there's some horrible memory has popped up from Dortmund or Mainz or some earlier days in his management career, but really it was awful stuff. He seems, he, he looks like he's, he could be so close to being burnt out with the whole thing. I don't know what impression you have or what chance you give Klopp of turning things around at this point. Um, yeah, I think I like, watched a bit of the game on Saturday. The thing that struck me was um, that he's not even doing that huge toothy grin that he does when they can see the goal. Like, no. you know, the camera, <laughs> and he's 
he's often looking like it's, it's like amused disbelief, but it's almost like he can believe what he's seeing and what's happening now, you know, because, um, yeah, like I, he, he says he can't remember a worse performance. I, I think if, if you were a Liverpool fan, you'd immediately think back to a couple of seasons ago during the behind closed doors season and, and the runs and the games that they went on then. But it feels like there are fewer mitigating circumstances this time around. That, that, that is the only thing. I mean, they, they did come back from it. They did, they did battle back from it. They did qualify for the Champions mm. League. So I'm wary to write it, write it off entirely and say like the whole club thing is over at this point. But I, I guess the point is you've done it once before. Can you do it again? Can you bring them back from what seems like, you know, the uh, back from the brink, really? Yeah, and it's and you know that was two years ago, and this team. I mean, I know that there's been a lot of talk about rebuilds and stuff, but that like you, you, the question is, has it really started? They haven't really addressed the midfield, which was the biggest cause for concern. Um, yes, some players are coming into the attack, and more and more players that perhaps aren't totally necessary as well. You don't feel that it feels like the, a, a club coming to the end of a cycle, not just on the pitch, but behind the scenes as well. With Julian Ward, Ian Gray, and people working the notice periods currently. Um, obviously, Michael Edwards leaving last season. It it just feels like something in need of a refresh. But um, obviously, Klopp's going to be central to that, I imagine. And you still back him, given everything that he's done over the past few years to pull them out of it. But where exactly it goes next, without again investment that a lot of the fans are calling for, and investment in the right places according to the plan and the structure that worked for so long, um, that's what you'd want to see. But it's going to be difficult to really achieve that between now and the end of the month and, and, and to do enough of that to pull them out of the mess that they're currently in. I, I don't know. It looks like the top four today, it looks like that those those four teams in the top four look like top four teams. They're all playing like top four teams, as we were saying before, on United. And so for Liverpool to force their way back into it, given the rabble that they are at the minute, to be honest, um, yeah, it's difficult to see. Yeah. Um, uh, and that, you know, that comparison with the their appalling uh, season two years ago, um, there was no Saudi Arabia in the Premier League then. There was no Arsenal on course for 100 points in the Premier League then. There were, you know, Holland is there. Whatever Man City's problems, they, they signed Holland, Liverpool signed Nunez. And now Manchester United, who who, who also were, were ahead of Liverpool in that season, to be fair, they're still there and looking even, even stronger. So the prospects of them fighting back seem to be dim. The question I would have for you, Miguel, is if you think that... Klopp, do you think Klopp really still has this in him? Because as, as Mark is saying, there's, it's not just the players. You know, they've got a situation on the pitch where they have good players and they have young players, but the players who are good aren't young and the players who are young aren't good. And then they've got uh, the owners wanting to leave, the transfer guru has already left, the, his successor has announced he's leaving, the data team seems to be clearing out. There's nothing left. It's just it's just Jurgen Klopp. The it's just Jurgen Klopp uh, standing there with a sad look in his face, saying, "It's it looked like my team was wasn't really convinced by what I had to say today." And also to add to that, we we're in a situation here where we don't really have kind of any sort of baseline or evidence to fall back on because we don't know if Klopp can build a new team at the same club because like, even at Dortmund he didn't really do that. It all built up to that 2011-12 team. And then a little bit like now, actually, it felt like because rather than do the kind of the Sir Alex Ferguson and Bob Paisley thing of making a clean break with a previous team and making wholesale changes in one summer to revitalize it, I think Paisley did it in 81. And, and this is sort of what happened at Dortmund as well, where r- rather than make all those changes in one summer or the majority of changes to, to really kind of make a psychological break with the team, it felt like he was still kind of hanging on to the core that Dortmund team would only make kind of certain changes every summer. I just feel a little bit like that Liverpool now where, I mean, the owners were still the owners, of course, 
are it looks like they're doubling down on Klopp. They're giving him more authority, uh, and this is what's happened with, the, with these changes in that in this analytical analytics led model, where you know rather than just kind of rebuilding that anew, it feels like the response is just to give give Klopp more authority. Now I'm sure there's a lot of people listening, and certainly a Liverpool fans who would say if anyone deserves that that authority, if anyone deserves the chance to do that, and the person they would get rid of last is Jurgen Klopp, and that's completely fair. But that doesn't necessarily mean it will work because, I mean, what's what's proven to work for Klopp is him being the head coach, if you like, in this wider structure. Uh, now he's got more authority, but in, in a situation where everything has to change. And we really, again, we've got a question where there's there's no kind of guidelines here. We are a little bit into uh, into new territory. Right. Um we know he's got the kind of the, the motivational abilities, the tactical abilities, all of that, but there's a little bit more to this and it's it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's definitely that, all right, Miguel. Mark, brilliant stuff. Thanks, Emil. Cheers, lads. From Ireland's second captain show. Second captain show. It's the best thing in the world for you because it's full of protein. protein. This is not a dig at football people who know the game. No respect, no honour. Put your respect on my day. Dog shit is bad, huh? But who plays rugby? I imagine it was like something you would expect to see in a porno movie. No, they don't. But they no. do. Sorry, on. They do not. And the balls. Shut up, the two of you. I just want to play commentary at a goal. Fall off and I go! Fall off and I go! Fuck you, can I guess? Fuck you, can I guess? I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You get the ball forward, you compete, you chase people, you close people down, you create excitement, you win balls when you shouldn't win balls, you commit yourself to the game. Final word today must go to an Arsenal fan, Andrew McGahan, who emailed us before the start of the season with the bold prediction that Arsenal would be competitive in the title race, potentially finishing anywhere between first and third. Oh, I remember this, and I was I was wondering when he'd get back. Yeah, today back. is the, It's interesting oh. that today is the well, day. It's a halfway turning. It's turning, blood. It's the halfway point of the season, as Andrew points out. Arsenal sit top of the league by eight points. The celebration police have been established. Richard Keyes is having weekly public meltdowns about Arteta and Arsenal playing the best football in the league. It's a very strange but exciting time. To to be a fan, the dread of certain situations in the game getting away from them, or knowing a big game might result in a 3 or 4-0 defeat is no longer present. The usual anxiety around matches, or not capitalising on momentum, is now replaced with an appreciation of how consistently good this team has been in producing each game, especially with their first half performances in terms of how quickly they've gotten off the mark in games. While my conservative prediction of third minimum looks to be secured, my optimistic prediction of a title run is still alive. It's only Arsenal relapsing into, well, Arsenal that could prevent Mikel Arteta from... Well, it says that will prevent Mikel Arteta from delivering his first of hopefully many Premier League titles at Arsenal. Oh, wow, I'm, I'm getting mixed messages here. And on the one hand, you're still a bit concerned. On the other hand, you're actually... You're giving Arteta multiple league titles now. So that's we'll go with that one. By the way, you may have missed the new Emirates artwork that was shown over the weekend. I think it's lovely. He sends on a... I'll send it on to you here, Ken. I don't know if that is the actual describe, artwork. No. You can describe what you're seeing here. Well, the, this features the entrance to the Emirates uh, and they've put up a, a wonderful... Um, an enormous uh, sort of mural of Mikel Arteta's uh, drawing on the flip chart of the heart, the heart and the brain holding hands. Well, this is from the the Amazon, the Amazon documentary. Yeah. But I don't one think of his, I, one of his little. Doodles. I think this is a gag. On I, 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 as far as I can see, the real Arsenal um, 
artwork features Arsenal greats, uh, past and present, male and female, manning um, sort of Napoleonic era cannons uh, and holding holding flags and sort of heroic. It's kind of I don't know socialist realism or something. Um, Banner uh, Victoria Concordia Crescit and all that kind of stuff, mm. and uh, yeah, it's it's great. It's it's beautiful. I mean, Arsenal. It's really it's all coming up Arsenal, isn't it? They play Manchester United next week, <coughs> and City twice in the next four weeks. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. Thank oh, and you thank Ken. you, Gerard. Thank My you. Night, thank I'm you. Back. Thanks for listening. The Second Captain's Podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Network. If you become a World Service member, you will hear all episodes ad free. That's the second time it's gone off. They never got home, they never got home, they never got home, those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. It is not war and death and famine, it's not that at all. It's the opposite of that, it's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sports is important. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.